This is Guns and Butter. You can't bail out the banks, leave the debts in place, and rescue the economy. It's a zero-sum game. Somebody has to lose, and that's what happened in uh, uh, 2009 when President Obama came in. He uh, invited the bankers to the White House, and he said, I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with pitchforks. By what he meant, the voters that he was bamboozling, he assured the bankers, he said, look, my loyalty is to my campaign donors, uh, not to the voters. Don't worry, my loyalty is with you. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Rescuing the Banks Instead of the Economy. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri-Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. His latest books are Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics. Today we discuss how the bank bailouts, not the crash, is killing the economy, the concept of debt deflation, the magic of compound interest, the growth of the financial extraction fire sector, quantitative easing, and tariffs, economic sanctions, and isolationism. Dr. Michael Hudson, welcome. Well, it's good to be back after a few years. Boy, I'll say. I've just read your article, The Layman 10th Anniversary Spin as a Teachable Moment. Obviously, 2018 is the 10th anniversary of the 2008 stock market crash. You immediately point out that today's financial malaise is a result of the bank bailouts, not the crash. I think people might find this statement surprising, since the claim is that the bailout saved the economy. Well, I think what the, uh, all the newspapers said was the bailout saved the banks, and to the bankers, the banks are the economy. Uh, the fact is, you can't save the banks and the economy, because if you save the banks, then you're saving all of the debt that uh, people owe to the banks. And if you save all of the debt that the people owe to the banks, and you foreclose on the three to nine million families that forfeited their homes in the mortgage crisis, if you leave the debts growing at compound interest, uh, raising the debt uh, equity ratios and the debt uh, income ratios, then the economy is going to shrink and shrink and shrink, and we're in a slow crash. So, in a sense, the uh, celebration over, uh, yes, uh, we saved the banks, uh, was correct last week, uh, but people don't realize that the economy cannot be saved unless there's a bank crash. And that's just exactly what Sheila Baer wrote in her autobiography. Uh, she was the head of the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and she pointed out that uh, Citibank, Citigroup, was insolvent, 
It had lost all of its money on bad gambles. She said it was the worst managed bank uh, in America, is distinct from the just plain crooked banks and criminal banks like uh, uh, Countrywide and uh, Bank of America and uh, Mills Fargo. Uh, and she said that uh, there was plenty of left in Citibank that all the insured depositors could have been reimbursed. No insured depositor would have lost money. But the stockholders and the bondholders that ran this, uh, this crooked gambling institution would have been wiped out. And she said that uh, uh, Obama and Geithner uh, really represented Citibank. Uh, uh, Geithner was a protege of uh, Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury under uh, under President Clinton. And uh, she said uh, she found out, she was told, look, it's all about the bondholders. So the problem is that people who were discussing, uh, you know, what happened 10 years ago, uh, either they are uh, Republican uh, free enterprise bankers who said, uh, well, uh, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, everything's fixed now. We don't have to do any regulation. Let the banks uh, be f free again. And you have the Democrats, uh, like Paul Krugman. And the problem is that they are still, they, they cannot come to criticize uh, what Obama did. And so you had a week ago, Paul Krugman, who is uh, the main Democratic uh, propagandist. Uh, he ceased to be an economist. He's uh, uh, just plain flack uh, for the banks and for the, uh, uh, the donor class of the Democrats now, uh, wrote that the Washington uh, Beltway was just crazy to believe that America had a debt problem. And I wrote that uh, in the article. Krugman said that uh, all you need is Keynesian policy to run a large enough budget deficit that uh, you'll spend money into the economy so that uh, wage earners will have enough money to pay the banks all the money that they owe. And I think his position is the Democratic Party's position. The role of wage earners is to make enough money that all of their income over and above survival needs has to be paid for the banks. What he wrote was, uh, let me quote what he wrote uh, in uh, uh, September 14th in the Times. The purely financial aspect of the crisis was basically over by the summer of 2009. Uh, and we're still living in the roots of the financial crisis. The debt crisis is a financial crisis. And he, he criticized the common sense observation that I'm, most of your listeners, I'm sure, can realize right away. Uh, uh, he said, the bizarre beltway consensus that despite high unemployment and record low interest rates, debt, not jobs, was the real problem. He says, there's no debt problem. It's all just uh, uh, jobs, and if you pay people more, they can pay the banks. There's no uh, feeling at all within the Democratic Party that somehow uh, the banks uh, uh, should have uh, been subordinate to saving the economy. Uh, and I think uh, that is one of the major reasons why uh, Hillary lost the, uh, the 2016 election. She kept saying, aren't you better off today than you were eight years ago uh, when Mr. Obama was elected? Well, most people, especially in the Midwest, said, no, we're not off. Are you kidding? We've lost our homes. Uh, employment's way down. Our wages are, are, are much lower. Our pension funds are being seized. Of course, we're not better. And uh, more and more people uh, stayed home. And there was just a survey I was reading today that uh, I think uh, 55 to 85 percent of Americans say if, if there was a rerun of the 2016 election between Trump and Hillary, they just wouldn't vote. 
uh, and because they're, they're both so bad. And so uh, what you really have seen in this anniversary is not uh, the discussion that you needed to have, which is how are we going to deal with the next crisis to avoid uh, bailing out the banks all over again? If we don't bail out the banks, what's our policy? How are we going to take over the insolvent banks, take them public, and, uh, uh, you know, as Sheila Bear pointed out, uh, if, the, uh, if Citibank would have been taken over by the FDIC, it wouldn't have made crooked loans. It wouldn't have made junk mortgages. It wouldn't have made corporate takeover loans. It wouldn't have made loans to uh, payday uh, uh, lenders. It wouldn't have uh, made derivative gambles. That's not what a public bank does. This discussion somehow uh, isn't occurring. And it's not occurring because people don't realize that in any economy, not only America, but you're having the same thing in Europe, the volume of debt expands exponentially by compound interest. In other words, all the debt that people owe keep mounting up more and more arrears. And if you miss a payment on your credit card, or if you miss a payment to the electric utility or any of your monthly bills, your credit rate interest goes up from uh, 11 or 12 percent to 29 percent. All of this accumulates up and up and up. And uh, the result is that uh, personal uh, debt service relative to income is going up. Corporate uh, debt service relative to income is going way up. Uh, And government, uh, the share of government budgets that have to be paid to bondholders and banks is going up. And that means that people don't have enough money to go and buy the goods and services they produce. And that's why here in New York, where I live, there are whole big uh, blocks down uh, 8th Street or Broadway or 5th Avenue or Madison Avenue, that uh, more and more uh, stores are empty and for rent because uh, the stores are going out of business. The restaurants especially are going out of business. Uh, The big chains uh, have been going out of business, as you've seen, uh, not only Toys R Us, but the whole slew of uh, big uh, global chains and American chains are going out. People do not have enough money to buy uh, goods and services anymore. And all of this is celebrated as saving the bank instead of uh, destroying the economy. So you're having a set of euphemisms as if uh, this keeping the debts in place and not having the debts uh, written down was a victory for the economy when it was really only a victory for the banks and their bondholders, not for the economy at at large, uh, which is going to keep limping along until it uh, does what uh, every other economy in similar conditions has done, write down the debt. And if it doesn't write down the debt, then you can look at what's happened in Greece as our future. More and more austerity. Uh, The first uh, debts to be uh, wiped out are going to be uh, what companies and states owe to the pension payments. You'll have uh, the the pensions uh, wiped out. Uh, You'll have Social Security uh, scaled back. The vice is going to be tightening financially on people. That should be what people are talking about when they talk about uh, the disaster of 2008, when essentially the first thing Obama did when he uh, was elected was uh, send a list of recommended uh, cabinet positions to uh, Rubin at Citicorp, and Citicorp got to name the cabinet. And, of course, it wasn't going to name anybody who would regulate it or uh, any people in justice who would uh, throw a banker in jail. And that's the crisis. It's a political crisis now that is tearing America apart, but it's not a crisis that's being talked about in the uh, press. 
You indicated that unless debts are canceled, the economy will suffer debt deflation and austerity, which you've just been talking about. Could you remind everyone what is meant by the term debt deflation? Uh, I have a chapter on that in my book, Killing the Host. Uh, the term debt deflation was uh, coined in the 1930s by Irving Fisher. And he said, uh, when the debts are left in place and people are losing their jobs and corporate employment is shrinking and wages are not growing, the debts tend to grow and grow and more and more of people's income is diverted to pay banks instead of paying goods and services. So uh, what, what's happened today is uh, people think of prices as uh, the price that they pay for uh, consumer goods, and that's the consumer price index. Uh, but what you have instead is that the Federal Reserve uh, had a choice. Uh, it created $4.4 trillion worth of credit, and all of this credit was given to Wall Street. Uh, not a penny was given into the economy uh, at large. So there's been a huge creation of money to uh, pay the banks uh, to enable them to keep the debts, including the bad debts and the fraudulent debts in place. Well, uh, this $4.3 trillion could have been used to write down the debts. They, it could have been used to buy the uh, excess mortgages, to write down the bank mortgages to the realistic uh, value so they wouldn't be junk mortgages, they'd be realistic mortgages. They, they could have uh, lowered the cost of housing uh, for people on, on mortgage. They could have uh, uh, essentially uh, freed most of the economy from debt. And you can imagine, your listeners can imagine, if you didn't have to pay your credit card debt and your student loan debt, and your uh, uh, mortgage debt, and your other debts to the banks, think of how much better your life would be. Think of all the things you could spend uh, your money on. Uh, you'd, you'd buy more, and you wouldn't be so badly squeezed. Uh, this was the road that could have been taken, uh, but you can't bail out the banks, leave the debts in place, and rescue the economy. It's a zero-sum game. Somebody has to lose, and that's what happened in uh, uh, 2009 when President Obama came in. He uh, invited the bankers to the White House, uh, and I give all the quotations in my book, and he said, I'm the only guy standing between you and the mob with pitchforks. Uh, Hillary called uh, her voters the deplorables, uh, but before he called them deplorables, Obama called them the mob with pitchforks. By what he meant, the voters that he was bamboozling when he said he assured the bankers, he said, look, my loyalty is to my campaign donors, uh, not to the voters. Don't worry, my loyalty is with you. I can uh, front for you and uh, screw uh, my voters. I'm paraphrasing what he said there, uh, but what he said was uh, bad enough. Uh, he looks at his uh, uh, supporters uh, and the Democratic voters, he called them the mob with pitchforks, and uh, he treated them that way. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Rescuing the Banks Instead of the Economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And uh, the result is that uh, uh, the people that uh, he put in place essentially were so pro-Wall Street that uh, uh, he... Uh, he put in, in place uh, the second big deflationary ploy, which was uh, the Obamacare, which was the Republican uh, health care. People don't realize that a large 
proportion of the Democrats, uh, people elected as Democrats, are actually Republicans uh, running as Democrats. Uh, they're called blue dogs, uh, such as Claire McCaskill, uh, uh, the West Virginia uh, senator, Missouri, uh, Heidi Heitkamp. Uh, they're basically Republicans, and uh, uh, under Obama, uh, the Democratic Party would only promote Republicans to run as Democrats. They they uh, essentially tried to purge the party of anyone uh, who was pro-labor or uh, pro-Bernie, certainly. And uh, you can see what they did to Bernie and what they've uh, continued to do with him. Uh, they've made sure that, uh, that it is impossible for uh, the voters to select the 2020 Democratic candidate because they've turned over almost all the voting power to the non-elected uh, representatives. Uh, they don't get to vote till the second ballot, to be sure, but the second ballot will happen if nobody gets 50%, and there are going to be so many people uh, running that, of course, no candidate's going to get the 50% on the first ballot. So essentially, uh, the Democratic Party's been captured uh, by the same Wall Street people that uh, put in President Clinton and Obama. And uh, the result would be that people, to answer your question, that uh, people are, uh, their credit card balances are going to keep accruing interest. Their student loans are, are not going to be canceled. Their mortgage charges uh, are going up as the interest rates are going up. And uh, it's going to be a slow crash. People are just uh, having to struggle. And so already, I think more than half the Americans, uh, according to the Federal Reserve, cannot raise $400 in an emergency. So they're literally one paycheck away from uh, homelessness or disaster or losing their house or missing a credit card payment that will increase their interest rates from 11% to 29%. And could you explain what is meant by the term quantitative easing and how does it reinflate asset prices? And I'm thinking right now of the housing market, for, for instance. Well, quantitative easing is, a, is meant to confuse people. Uh, what is the quantity and what's being eased? Uh, what it meant is the Federal Reserve uh, went to the bank and said, look, you can give us uh, all of your... Uh, the loans that you've written, uh, mortgage loans, uh, all these junk mortgages, other loans, you can uh, keep your assets uh, with us and we will uh, count it as a Federal Reserve uh, deposit. So it's a cash for trash swap. And the Federal Reserve has basically, uh, the quantitative easing was to pump $4.3 trillion into bank reserves that banks otherwise wouldn't have had to lend. And the, the pretense was that this will enable the banks to start lending to factories again to, uh, into the economy to uh, put people back to work. Now, this is bizarre because for the last 100 years, banks don't lend to build factories. Banks only lend against uh, assets in place or uh, income that comes in. Uh, in fact, uh, almost 70% of capital investment, meaning factories, buildings, is done with retained earnings of corporations. And the other investment is done by uh, stock issues, by the stock market. Uh, the banks don't lend to build capital. What they do lend is to corporate raiders uh, to take over uh, companies. So what the Federal Reserve did was create so much credit for banks that interest rates went down to 0.1%. 
That's what you'd get by lending to the government. Uh, the interest rates were zero. What that meant is that banks and their customers can borrow 0.1% or 1%, and they can buy uh, a, a whole entire company whose, let's say, its stock dividends. They could buy the stock, and the stock dividends are yielding 5 6 7 or 8%. So you can borrow at 1% from the Federal Reserve that's just given uh, the $4.3 trillion, and you can use all this money to uh, buy a company uh, on credit. Uh, and then all of a sudden, you've uh, replaced the company's stock with a bond because you've borrowed the money, uh, and now it's a debt instead of uh, equity. And once you've bought the company, what do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you try to uh, grab the workers' pension funds, like happened at the Chicago Tribune when uh, you, you grab their fund and wipe them out. Secondly, you, you downsize. You try to squeeze out as much profit as you can get by shrinking the labor force, by working it harder, by telling the labor unions, uh, if you go on strike, then we're just going to declare bankruptcy and that'll wipe out uh, the pension funds that you think uh, we owe you. Unless you agree to change your pension program from a defined payout, so you know what you're going to get as a pension, to a defined contribution plan, where all you know is how much you're going to pay in every month. They uh, raise the prices uh, to consumers, and uh, uh, the result is a crapification of the uh, corporations that are taken over. So essentially, the credit that the uh, Federal Reserve has created was uh, given to, to raiders to crapify the economy, to downsize it, to outsource it, to move their production abroad for cheaper labor, and it became part of the class war of finance versus uh, the rest of the economy. Uh, none of this quantitative easing, meaning this money creation, was spent into the economy. It all went into the financial sector, and people talk about uh, money being created by helicopters, dropping it down on the economy. The helicopter only flies over Wall Street. Uh, that's the key thing to understand. Uh, and the Federal Reserve, since it was created to replace the Treasury, uh, was created to uh, shift monetary policy and uh, economic policy out of the hands of Washington, out of the hands of elected officials, into the hands of the banks. And the Federal Reserve acts as the uh, board of directors for the banking system in an adversarial position against the rest of the economy, not uh, for it. And that's why, for instance, Ben Bernanke, who was head of the Federal Reserve under Obama, uh, just wrote a paper a little while ago saying uh, that there wasn't any crisis in 2008. Uh, there was a panic because people didn't have faith. If you have faith in the system, everything will be okay. There's no underlying problem. So he uh, goes hand in hand with uh, people like Paul Krugman and saying debt doesn't matter because uh, we owe it to ourselves. But of course, who are the ourselves? Uh, the debt is owed by the 99% to the 1%, uh, and debt does matter. If you're the 1%, that's why you're growing and the 99% isn't, because uh, the, the 1% holds the 99% in deepening debt. And that's uh, the situation in which uh, the U.S. economy has locked itself into today. And how does this procedure reinflate asset prices? Well, if you can uh, borrow from the Federal Reserve at 0.1%, then you can buy corporate bonds that are yielding 5 or 6%. You can buy stocks. And so all of this money was borrowed to buy stocks and to buy bonds. 
and that pushed up the price. And uh, also, uh, you could buy uh, mortgages. Uh, there are all these mortgages that would have uh, lost money that are paying 5 or 6%, but now you can borrow at 1%, and uh, you can uh, make 4%. You call it, it's the unearned increment. It's the arbitrage uh, that you get from the difference between uh, what you can squeeze out uh, of real estate or a corporation uh, and uh, what you have to pay the bank. So all this credit was used to inflate asset prices, uh, including the housing prices that people have to pay if you're trying to buy a house. Uh, it wasn't uh, used to help uh, uh, people's income and spending uh, on goods and services. Uh, it's just to increase the capital gains on stocks bonds and real estate. And most of the stock and bond market is owned by the wealthiest uh, 1%. So basically, all of this quantitative easing was creating wealth for the 1% uh, without helping the 99%. And in fact, uh, was almost guaranteeing that most uh, pension funds and even insurance companies and personal savings uh, would fail to provide for the retirement. Because if the quantitative easing bids up bond prices, that means that uh, the bond yield is falling to about uh, 1% for longer-term government bonds for a long time. 0.1% if you want to keep your money safe in uh, short-term uh, treasuries. So all of a sudden, uh, if people were trying to put their money in the banks or in a, uh, uh, a money market fund to save uh, for retirement. All of a sudden, they weren't, uh, they weren't getting any interest. And uh, all of the mathematical programs that uh, say, here's how much a state or a city or a corporate employer has to put aside in order to be able to pay the pensions that it's promised, all of a sudden, all these mathematical forecasts uh, were thrown out the window because there wasn't any more interest payment. And that made some pension funds so desperate, they went to Wall Street and said, can't you make more money? And so the Wall Street uh, money managers would take the pension fund money and put them in uh, corporate junk bonds and takeover loans and corporate rating. And so all of a sudden, the pension funds, instead of being used to help labor, were used to help uh, corporate raiders uh, buy companies and uh, fire labor and uh, downsize its working conditions and uh, make, make the world much harder to survive in. Well, right, because if the pension funds were counting on an interest accrual in order to uh, keep the pension fund solvent, but then with no interest, then they're forced to do something else with the money, is what you're saying. Well, yes, either they get very little money, which is what happened, right. uh, or they take risks. And uh, uh, there have been many, many lawsuits by uh, state and local pension funds against Wall Street saying, oh, they were tricked. In other words, uh, when the Wall Street boys see a pension fund manager coming in the window, you know, a lot of these people are not quite as sophisticated because Wall Street hires the most sophisticated people. And they look at you like a lawyer would look at you. How much does this client have and how can I take the money out of his pocket and put it into my pocket? And uh, they were ripped off. And uh, again, the, uh, the fastest growing banks uh, have been liable for uh, the most civil penalties for fraud. And they've had to settle and said, okay, we cheated you. We have to give you some of the money back. And uh, that's been largely tying up the court system for the last few years in the United States. You point out that when the debt is so enormous that the banks are not able to collect, that they then gain control of the government to make it pay. And how exactly do they do this? They want almost uh, 
100% of mortgages for houses under about $600,000 now are guaranteed by the Federal Housing Authority. Banks will not make uh, uh, loans on uh, housing or student loans unless the government promises that if the loan goes bad, the government will pay. So uh, the banks take zero risk. Meanwhile, they charge very high uh, student loan rates because they say, oh, they're very risky. But all the risk is on the, on the government. If a student uh, defaults on the loan and we're having rising default rates on student loans, then the bank uh, not only gets to uh, go to the government and say, uh, give us the, uh, the money that uh, the students would have paid, but also let us charge enormous penalty fees. And the penalty fees are as high as the interest rate. So the government has to end up paying the banks, making sure that the banks have no risk at all in mortgage loans, student loans, and other loans, because they guarantee, it's like the government countersigns on every loan, just as if uh, somebody's parents uh, countersigned on a student loan, the government countersigns, and it, uh, uh, it guarantees the banks against loss. So it's, it's a zero-risk operation. Well, if it's zero-risk, you ask, why should they get interest? Why shouldn't they just get their fees? If the government's going to guarantee all the loans, why doesn't the government directly have a housing agency making the loans directly where there's no incentive to write chunk mortgages, no incentive to falsify, no in- incentive to do the criminal activities that uh, Citibank pleaded guilty for, uh, Bank of America pleaded guilty for, uh, Wells Fargo pleaded guilty for, and uh, the other banks. This is simply, uh, it's, it's bizarre. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show, Rescuing the Banks Instead of the Economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that FICA, F-I-C-A, wage withholding and allied taxes are levied to bail out the creditor class. If FICA withholding is supposed to be for Social Security and Medicare. How is it bailing out the creditor class? Uh, I don't remember writing it in exactly that way. I think I must have said FICA and must have added that to uh, all of the government guarantees. Uh, the, the way that the FICA is designed is that only uh, people who earn incomes up to a hundred and $20,000 have to pay. The rich people, uh, wealthy people, don't have to pay any FICA charges on the high income that they get over 120000 a year. They don't have to pay any uh, FICA charges for Social Security and tax on capital gains uh, that they make. Uh, they don't have to make any uh, FICA payments on uh, income that they make in the United States, but their accountants say they make in Ireland or in offshore banking centers. So essentially, they let uh, the sophisticated financial sector, uh, people who make over $120,000 a year, they don't have to pay. It's all paid for by the bottom uh, 99%, not by the top 1% or even the top 10%. When a creditor makes a loan, let's say for $100, $100 is then created or put into the money supply. What is not created or put into circulation at the time of the loan is the interest. Where does the money for the interest come from? 
that has to be paid out of the borrower's income. So if you borrow, if you uh, spend $100 or more on your credit card, you get to spend the $100, but then you have to spend, uh, uh, let's say, you're just keeping current on your credit card. By the end of a, a year, you'll have to spend either an extra $19 in uh, interest out of your income or $29 if you're at the uh, penalty rate and uh, have missed uh, a payment anywhere. So uh, the the interest is paid out of uh, income that otherwise would have been spent on buying goods and services. Let's talk about your famous fire sector, finance, insurance, and real estate. Generally, how would you describe these three sectors of the economy, and why do you lump them together? I lump them together because they're basically a symbiotic uh, sector. Uh, 80% of bank loans are to the real estate sector. And as a result, uh, I think over 80% of bank income comes from mortgage interest. So uh, essentially, uh, if you are buying a house or selling a house, a house is worth whatever a bank is going to lend you to buy it. And if you go to buy a house and there are other buyers who are uh, going to want to buy the same house, you bid against each other, and the winner is usually the buyer, and the same thing for commercial property, who's willing to spend all of the rental value of the house, uh, all of the sort of free lunch rent is interest. Rent is for paying interest. Uh, and uh, if you're buying a building, you'll uh, say, okay, here's the rent roll of the building. Here are my expenses. All of the net rent that I get over and above expenses, I can pay the bank for uh, amortization and interest. So the bank will get everything. Now, why would a real estate developer or speculator do that? It's because they expect to make a capital gain uh, because that's not going to be taxed. It's not taxed if you just keep plowing it back and buying more and more real estate. It's not taxed if you die. It's not taxed if you do all sorts of, if you have a good accountant. So basically, the real estate sector is a function of finance. Same thing with insurance companies. Uh, ever since the 19th century, banks used insurance companies as a sort of uh, front. Uh, in the 1830s, 150 years ago, New York State had a huge inquiry into the crooked insurance companies working with the crooked uh, banks. Uh, the banks essentially uh, underwrite insurance companies and uh, work uh, with them. So it, it's a symbiotic sector. The first company that Citibank merged with after Clinton uh, got rid of the uh, Glass-Steagall Act was uh, the Travelers Insurance Company so that it could combine the uh, operations. Uh, Banks have been buying up uh, insurance companies, so if they make a loan to a uh, home buyer, they say, okay, uh, you have to pay us interest on your mortgage, but you're also, here's the insurance that we'll sell you, and you pay the insurance for the home. You, we won't give you a mortgage unless you buy insurance, and you have to buy insurance so that we know if your home burns down or uh, there's something uh, flooded, uh, we get reimbursed and you get all the risks. So uh, insurance is part of almost every real estate uh, loan. So insurance, finance, and real estate are all part of the same sector. You write that today's financially dysfunctional economy cannot be saved without a bank crash. So if we don't have a bailout, we don't save the banks, we let them crash, okay? And Mm -hmm. how does that benefit the economy then? Well, for one thing, when I talked about 
the debt problem is what's uh, hurting the economy. You could call this the savings problem. One person's debt is another person's saving. So all the debt that's owed by the 99% is on the other side of the balance sheet, and that's the savings of the 1%. Now, the uh, FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, uh, insures uh, all of the bread-and-butter depositors, the people who use banks for checking accounts and savings accounts, you know, up to uh, 250000 A bank crash would wipe out the stockholders, would wipe out most of the bondholders, and would save the insured depositors. It would save the economy, but it would wipe out all of these savings of the 1% that represent the debts of the 99%. The economy cannot recover if the debts of today all remain in place. If people continue to owe all of the credit card debt they owe, uh, all of the mortgage debts they owe, all the car loans they owe, they're, they're not going to be able to increase their spending on uh, things, on goods and services. And if they can't increase their spending on what they produce, there's going to be much less production and fewer stores, uh, fewer uh, sales outlets, and the economy is going to shrink and shrink and shrink, just like it's uh, doing in Greece. Could you explain how the Eurozone has imposed austerity, Greek style, on itself by limiting deficits of over 3% of GDP, which, of course, the United States doesn't do that? Well, the United States and England uh, have central banks that can simply monetize a government deficit. So uh, one of the good things that uh, President Obama did as uh, after he created the uh, debt uh, depression was at least to begin running a modest uh, deficit to spend money into the economy. If the private sector is uh, shrinking and not employing people at rising wages, then uh, the government can spend money in and uh, the government can act all the way up to the employer of last resort. The government can spend uh, to keep the economy fully employed at uh, decent uh, living standards. But e Europe is di different. The Eurozone was designed by ultra-right-wing politicians. Uh, it was basically a fascist plan. Fascist as uh, in the 1930s. Uh, fascist as in the Austrian school. They said that uh, we don't want government spending to be inflationary, meaning we don't want government spending to increase wages. Uh, essentially, the Eurozone is created as an anti-labor, very right-wing uh, organization that never could have been done before, and said, we will not let any country run budget deficits, even if there's mass unemployment, even if they're underused resources, even if people are losing their homes. Uh, we will not spend money uh, into the economy to help it recover, and they've written that by law into the European Constitution. So they got rid of every country's central bank and uh, segregated everything in the European Central Bank uh, that uh, that will not let governments run deficits of more than three percent, meaning you know very very small amounts of money. And the uh, European Central Bank has also created about four trillion dollars worth of money only for the banks. So uh, the the eurozone is basically a class war against labor. The uh, intention uh, from the eurozone from the beginning was to, to break 
labor unions, to increase unemployment, to make uh, living standards fall by about 20%, to uh, shorten the lifespans, increase the suicide rates, increase the disease rates, uh, lower the birth rate, and uh, essentially it's... uh, uh, all of this was uh, written at the time it was done as, as if this is the solution to the problem, not a problem in itself. The solution to uh, the economic problem, the Eurozone said, was people are living too well. We have to cut their living standards by 5, 10, 20 percent so that all the money goes to the wealth creators, namely the financial sector. And uh, that makes it, the plan is. Uh, really evil. That is the libertarian uh, Austrian uh, economic plan that underlay the Eurozone. From the beginning and the result is what you have uh, in Greece where the uh, unemployment rate is near uh, 30%. uh, Lifespans are shortening. Emigration is rising. Uh, uh, People are just, uh, people in their 20s and 30s are having to leave the country uh, to find work because there's no work there and the government uh, cannot do what uh, the United States did in the Depression by uh, setting up public works, by public infrastructure spending, uh, by uh, uh, helping the economy recover. You mentioned in your article the end of history at the close of Roman antiquity and an ensuing dark age. What did the dark age look like economically, and how was it brought about? Well, the Roman historians, uh, Livy and uh, uh, Plutarch uh, and others, all blamed uh, the decline of Rome on uh, the creditors uh, holding the rest of the economy in debt, foreclosing on the lands, and ended up concentrating all the land ownership uh, in their own hands. So uh, the result was uh, absolute impoverishment uh, throughout the Western Roman Empire, that is, uh, Western Europe. Uh, Byzantium was relatively uh, uh, free of this. uh, in order to survive, labor had to uh, become a client of a wealthy uh, creditor or a wealthy landowner, and uh, that was serfdom. And the uh, essence of serfdom was that all of the economic surplus was turned over to the landowner, uh, the landlord, uh, usually a military uh, force. And uh, the serf owed uh, military duty to the landlord, owed uh, the crops to the landlord, uh, and was supposed to uh, be assured the bare minimum subsistence that they needed uh, uh, to live. Well, essentially, that's what we're uh, moving at uh, moving at today. History stopped because uh, progress stopped, uh, investment stopped, uh, uh, literacy stopped. Uh, uh, the money economy itself dried up for the 99%. The only money that was spent was among the lords at the top who lived in their manors and would buy, would continue to buy luxuries uh, for themselves. Uh, but for the vast amount of the population, it was subsistence levels. All of this, uh, the idea of uh, serfdom has been rechristened the end of history by Francis Fukuyama, uh, who wrote a book on that a few years ago. And uh, after America uh, defeated uh, Russia in the Cold War and said, well, uh, the neoliberal world is here. Uh, All power to the banks. It's a wonderful new world. The banks will take care of us. And uh, history stopped. We don't need any more changes. All we need is to uh, let the new status quo unfold. Well, the new status quo is doing exactly what happened uh, in the Roman Empire. People are falling more and more into debt. 
They're losing their homes. Home ownership is, is falling. They're more and more dependent on the employers. The labor unions are uh, losing their power because the workers are afraid to go on strike uh, or even to protest working conditions because if they protest or strike, they'll be fired and they're one paycheck away from homelessness or losing their uh, house. Uh, and so the, the population has lost its uh, independence and there's an increasing dependency uh, on employers. Uh, the difference is that people can live wherever they want, unlike serfdom, uh, where uh, serfs were tied to the land. But wherever uh, they go, they're tied to pay their economic surplus, no longer to the landlords, but to the financial lords, to the banks and to the creditors and the bondholders behind the banks, uh, to, the, to the creditor class that uh, holds them in uh, debt through the banking system, the insurance system, uh, the credit system, and uh, the political system. Now that uh, politics has been uh, essentially turned over to the donor class instead of the voter class, uh, you have essentially uh, political voting by wealth, meaning by campaign contributions, and uh, a loss of uh, the popular power to protect its own interests and rising living standards. So in Roman antiquity, all of the wealth was driven to the very top layer, which then led to a serfdom of the, uh, of the population. And it sounds like the same thing is happening today, only uh, on a global level, right? That, yes, that's my point. I'm speaking with financial economist and historian Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show... Rescuing the Banks Instead of the Economy. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is your assessment of President Trump's tariff and trade wars? Uh, I've written quite a bit on tariff policy and protectionism. Uh, America got rich by a protectionist policy. Uh, my book, America's Protectionist uh, Takeoff from 1815 to 1914, is all about that. And my trade theory and foreign debt uh, is all about that. There is a logic for protectionism, but the logic is you want to uh, build up manufacturing and high value added by minimizing uh, the cost of raw materials. Uh, and the cost of uh, the cost of labor, uh, and what Trump is doing is the opposite of what uh, traditional protectionism has advised. Uh, in, instead of lowering the cost to American manufacturers, he's raised the price of steel, raised the price of aluminum, raised the price of raw materials and other inputs. So this uh, squeezes American manufacturers. Uh, and so suppose you're a car maker or you're making uh, beer beer cans. Uh, Canadians, Europeans, Mexicans, uh, producers all over the world who are making cars, refrigerators, uh, beer cans, anything, can now buy uh, aluminum and uh, steel much cheaper than American companies can, so they can afford to make products at a much cheaper rate, price, than American uh, companies have to charge to break even, uh, and they can undersell the American manufacturers. So what Trump has put in place is a guaranteed unemployment for American heavy manufacturing industry. Uh, he wants to spread, his strategy is to spread the rust belt from the Midwest to the entire uh, country and make the whole country look like uh, Detroit and the rest. And he doesn't seem to realize that. Nobody's explained to him that there actually is a, a protection of strategy and he's doing it all wrong. 
Right. It seems like from what he says, he, he doesn't understand what he's doing. Uh, one hopes that that's the case. One hopes he's not intentionally wiping out uh, American manufacturing uh, uh, companies. But uh, that's certainly the effect. Right. And now these tariffs that he's imposing, I mean, these constitute a trade war. Is that right? Uh, that uh, seems to be the case. He thinks it's a trade war. Uh, Russia has said, thank you very much for doing a favor. Uh, the tariffs go hand-in-hand hand with uh, uh, sanctions against Russia and China. And uh, so now the Russians, who uh, had moved all their money abroad, are now moving it back into Russia. And uh, Russia and China, under the World Trade Organization, would not have been allowed to raise tariffs on particular industries to protect themselves. Uh, but now you are allowed under the rules to retaliate against uh, an American act of uh, trade war. So now other countries are legally able to uh, erect tariffs against uh, whatever they choose uh, by an equal and offsetting amount to uh, the American warfare. And uh, this is uh, helping other countries become more independent, especially in agriculture, uh, which I think is very desirable. I think every country should produce its own food supply and its own means of support. So Trump is helping other countries become more independent of the United States. And if they sort of hesitate to do it, he's forcing them to become more independent of the United States by the trade war. He's not letting uh, China use its balance of payments in trade surplus uh, to buy American uh, industries. So China's uh, building these industries at home. So he's, he's uh, spurring the disinvestment in America and uh, the flight of capital uh, out of America uh, into Asia, the third world, Europe. Well, you mentioned that, you just mentioned that President Trump is preventing the Chinese from buying American industries. How is he doing that? Uh, basically illegally. He says it's national security. If they buy a filling station, like they wanted to buy uh, some uh, uh, gas stations in California, he says that's national security. Uh, he's saying that if we buy Chinese consumer goods that are sold at Walmart, uh, that's a threat to our national security. Uh, there is a special clause in trade things that countries are able to present national security. And uh, he said our national security lies in controlling every other country by reducing every other country to uh, to let us monopolize uh, the uh, information technology to us monopolize the world and charge whatever we want and to reduce them to serfdom our national security is threatened if we can't destroy every country economically so he's uh, defined uh, national security as economic war against humanity and uh, Congress has gone along with that and has uh, let him do it. So this is war against humanity. It's war against every other country, saying no country can grow unless all of the result of their growth is paid to American firms and uh, to American, uh, ultimately, American financiers and the 1%, so that the 1% can use that to fight the real enemy, which is the American 99%. And uh, essentially, this is uh, the plan for neo-serfdom. How do economic sanctions, particularly secondary sanctions, work to bring down an economy? Well, one way is threatened is uh, if uh, Europe will, uh, uh, European countries and even Chinese countries will uh, buy Iranian oil 
or trade with uh, Iran or North Korea or anyone that America doesn't like, we can uh, get them out of the SWIFT system of bank clearing. That, that means that when you write a check to somebody, it all goes through a computerized uh, bank clearing operation. America, even though this uh, SWIFT system of bank clearing is run out of uh, Europe, uh, I think in, in uh, Luxembourg, uh, the Americans uh, threatened to smash the whole system and break everybody's payment system. Uh, it will pull out all the connections of the economy. Uh, this is uh, actually, the result is that uh, Russia moved very quickly to create its own alternative to SWIFT, and other countries are making their own uh, clearing system and their trading system as quickly as possible to become independent of the United States to wreck their economy uh, by sanctions so that uh, they're, they're going to trade much less with the United States. They're not going to use American banks. They're bypassing the U.S. economy in every way. And so the result of what Trump is doing is literal isolationism. Other countries are not dealing with the American banking system, and they're not becoming dependent on American agriculture, because America will say, we'll do what we did to China in the 1950s. We won't export any uh, grain to you, and we'll try to starve you out. So uh, China's response was, uh, okay, we'll grow our own grain and have an agricultural revolution, which they've done. So essentially, America is trying to say, we will punish uh, any country that uh, buys foreign oil instead of American oil. We want to sell you high-priced American gas, but you want to buy cheap American gas? We will wreck your economy if you will do that. And what he doesn't say, we will also assassinate your leaders who uh, want to do that. We will also you know, have a uh, political uh, war and interfere with your elections to try to bring pro-Americans on our side and make sure that they're elected. But basically, he'll uh, try to interfere with their, their food chain, with their supply chain, with their bank transfer mechanisms, uh, with their information technology, if they don't move very quickly to become independent and treat the United States as a pariah country. I've read that the Trump administration is putting economic sanctions on a Chinese military agency for buying Russian fighter jets and missiles that <laughs> violates U.S. sanctions on Russia. Is the, I think that's right, yeah. America says, China, you have to buy your uh, uh, high-priced uh, uh, airplanes uh, from us. Uh, don't buy... America has a real problem with Russian uh, military. The, the Russian military is much, much more efficient and technologically superior to that in the United States. And uh, uh, America says, China, uh, we forbid you to uh, buy superior Russian uh, defense systems because we want to be able to atom bomb you to smithereens whenever we want. And uh, we're going to fight against you if you defend yourself. You have to uh, uh, buy high-priced uh, like F-35s from us that don't work uh, instead of buying uh, Russian uh, anti-aircraft uh, radar systems uh, that, that do work. So essentially, it's a trade war with a military fist uh, attached to it. So then, is the U.S. waging economic warfare on the rest of the world? Economic, military, demographic, uh, every, every form of uh, warfare, political, cultural, multidimensional warfare against the rest of the world. Who do you think President Trump is taking advice from? <laughs> uh, nobody really knows. Uh, I guess who, uh, 
from whoever uh, gives him the largest campaign contribution, uh, just like uh, any other president, just like uh, Obama or uh, Bush or Clinton. Uh, I think they all seem to be up for sale. Dr. Michael Hudson, thank you very much. It's always good to be here, Bonnie. been speaking with Dr. Michael Hudson. Today's show has been Rescuing the Banks Instead of the Economy. Dr. Hudson is a financial economist and historian. He is president of the Institute for the Study of Long-Term Economic Trend, a Wall Street financial analyst, and distinguished research professor of economics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. His 1972 book, Super Imperialism, the Economic Strategy of American Empire, is a critique of how the United States exploited foreign economies through the IMF and World Bank. He is also author of Trade, Development, and Foreign Debt, and The Myth of Aid, among many others. His latest books are Killing the Host, How Financial Parasites and Debt Destroy the Global Economy, and J is for Junk Economics. Dr. Hudson acts as an economic advisor to governments worldwide on finance and tax law. Visit his website at michael-hudson.com. That's michael-hudson.com. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what decides yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? 